Welcome to World View, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm David McKechnie, standing in this week for Chris Dooley. Later on today's podcast, we'll find out about the complicated aftermath of the Fukushima nuclear disaster nine years on. But really, there's just one story in the world this week, or more specifically in Europe, the coronavirus outbreak sweeping across the continent. National governments and health officials are scrambling to halt the virus's spread. All 27 EU countries have now reported cases. And as of this morning, Tuesday, COVID-19 had claimed more than 520 lives in Europe, mainly in Italy. Each hour brings with it some dramatic new policy measure or control. From the scrapping of the St. Patrick's Day parades in Ireland, to the mass cancellation of flights and events, and the closure of schools. Most dramatically, the whole of Italy was locked down on Monday night. But the response to the outbreak across Europe has been uncoordinated. Some countries have been quicker to act than others. Responses have depended on the number of cases, the range of domestic medical opinion, and perhaps some cultural issues too. Our new Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary has been looking at the Netherlands, which saw the number of cases rise from 1 to 382 in 12 days since its first case of coronavirus was confirmed. Welcome to the podcast, Naomi. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. In a slightly farcical scene on Monday, this clip was doing the rounds on Twitter. The Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte ended a press conference in which he warned about the dangers of shaking hands by turning to the health expert alongside him and uh, doing exactly that. Oh, sorry, mag niet Sorry, sorry. Nee, nee. Oh, oh, over, over, over. So, Now, it could happen to anyone, of course, but it did seem a little emblematic of how you found attitudes towards the coronavirus in the Netherlands to be. Yes, certainly. Um, the response in the Netherlands has been striking in so far as it has been significantly more relaxed um, than in other EU countries. And you can see uh, really the examples of inconsistent policy between EU states, even that border one, one another, when you compare uh, the same people and what treatment they received in the Netherlands versus Germany. So, for example, there was a case of a Dutch couple who had been repatriated from a quarantined uh, cruise ship in Yokohama, the Diamond Princess. And when they arrived at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, the Dutch health authorities met them there with bare handshakes and offered them cups of coffee and sent them on their way. Now, it just so happened that this Dutch couple also have a house in Germany. So when they crossed the border, they were incredibly surprised and kind of offended to find that they were met with by people in hazmat suits and placed in immediate quarantine uh, for 14 days and instructed that they couldn't go any further than their garden, not even to get groceries or anything. The neighbours had to drop them off at the doorstep. Um, so that's one example of how even as people are able to cross borders freely, uh, EU states have been inconsistent in implementing policy. And the Netherlands is quite a stark example that I've seen of a much more liberal approach to managing the virus. Uh, how do you account for that less uh, stringent approach, certainly in comparison to, to Germany, as you say? Well, it's something of an experiment. We don't really know how all of this is going to end, although the signs in Italy are extremely concerning with a very high death rate there. Um, so I suppose culturally the attitude in the Netherlands has been um, has lent towards keeping normality going. Uh, it's business as usual. We're not going to overreact. There's quite a social stigma uh, placed on being worried about illness, in my experience. And um, there's, for example, the media response to the initial reports of the outbreak 
wasn't so much to focus on the virus itself, but more to report about people's panicked reactions to the virus. So there were lots of stories, for example, about the Italian corona panic, where they described scenes in Italy where people were afraid of the illness. Um, So there's this sort of idea that in the Netherlands, uh, there's a bit of exceptionalism. You know, it's a wealthy country. It does well generally. They're, uh, they're very smart. They have a good health system. And, you know, it won't really affect them. That's kind of a, a response they have. Also, um, the Dutch health system is somewhat different from um, the approaches of other health systems internationally. It's quite a a well-known response of foreigners that they find Dutch GPs quite reluctant to prescribe um, medications. And there's the kind of stereotypical attitude of the Dutch doctor is they tell you, you know, to take a, a paracetamol, eat a bit of ballon, which is kind of a deep, deep fried um, croquette, um, and, you know, sleep it off. Um, and it, from what I can see, there's something of that attitude among the Dutch health authorities. So they often compare um, the outbreak of COVID-19 to the seasonal influenza flu. And they say, well, look, you know, lots of people die of the flu every year. We don't get worked up about it. Um, this is another uh, another disease. We shouldn't panic. Um, and, you know, it's it, you, you do nothing really to worry about unless you're old or you've got pre-existing conditions. I think this somewhat underplays the potential uh, that this virus apparently has to absolutely swamp health systems, um, which we've seen in in Italy. Um, And um, it's quite striking that up until even this morning, um, we're recording on um, on, on Tuesday, there was even a, an op-ed today in a newspaper in the Netherlands, which was very much playing down the virus. Even this is after Italy has pretty much placed the entire country under quarantine, saying, you know, what's the fuss? Um, we shouldn't panic. How is this any different from flu? Uh, I think perhaps it's useful to know as well that the, the Netherlands is struggling with capacity to deal with the virus. So they have limited testing capacity. And they also have, um, there's only so many people that doctors can obviously see at a time. So the current advice for people is to stay home, uh, even even if they have symptoms, even if they've traveled to somewhere like a hotspot in Italy or Iran or China, even, even then they should stay home um, if they have symptoms and not even call their doctor unless their temperature goes above 38 degrees. Uh, so it seems that in knowing that they have limited capacity, perhaps, their approach is that people can take care of themselves for the most part at home. Dutch authorities have told people initially that they only to quarantine if, if they had shown symptoms. Isn't that right? Conti- yes, they continue to advise that um, even if you've uh, been at the very heart of the outbreak, um, say in northern Italy, there is no need to self-quarantine unless you have symptoms. Um, now, this advice appears to be based on uh, a belief that people who do not have symptoms can't transmit transmit the virus. That's what the local health um, authorities have been saying here and the government has said here. Um, however, that advice uh, appears to be flawed because there is some evidence that the virus can indeed spread from people who don't have symptoms. And apart from that, it also relies on people to be the best judge as to whether they have symptoms or not. And there was a famous case in Australia where a doctor um, was uh, kind of fighting off what he thought was the tail end of a mild cold and treated 70 patients and subsequently tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, so it, it it's it's difficult to see how telling people to judge whether they themselves 
um, have symptoms is an effective containment policy. And it, it's not the only policy choice there is. So, for example, other countries have, if they haven't had capacity to test everyone, they've said, OK, well, just to be cautious, if you've travelled to Iran, if you've travelled to China, if you've travelled to these risk spots in northern Italy, just stay home for two weeks, you know, as a precaution, just self-quarantine. Um, so, you know, that's also a choice, that, that, but the Dutch don't seem to have made it. You have been in touch with the European uh, Centre for Disease Prevention and Control at their uh, advice on whether people with symptoms of the virus could pass it on. And uh, obviously other, other World Health Authorities have said that there can be asymptomatic cases, but the ECDC said that, that that wasn't the case. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So I became a little bit obsessed with this issue of asymptomatic um, transmission over the last few days because I could see that it was underpinning this cascade of policy decisions in the Netherlands that appeared to be allowing the virus to spread. Um, And, you know, the authorities in the Netherlands kept repeating that. So I kind of went back and tried to track what was the advice of all the different international health authorities. And essentially there was an inconsistency. So the the World Health Organization says that yes, people without symptoms can transmit the virus. The US uh, CDC, uh, Center for Disease um, Prevention and Control, that also says that yes, asymptomatic people can transmit the virus. Up until the time of recording, the European Centers for Disease Protection and Control had contrary device. They actually had quite a strong statement which said people without symptoms cannot transmit the virus. Now, it's worth pointing out that stating that something cannot happen is not the same as saying there is insufficient evidence to show that it can happen. Um, so that advice is is highly questionable, in my view, given that Chinese researchers had already reported a case of asymptomatic transmission, um, I think, over a month ago. And German doctors wrote to the New England Journal of Medicine on March the 5th to report an apparent case of asymptomatic transmission outside Munich on March the 5th. Uh, so it's absolutely incorrect to state that there's no evidence for it. This kind of, I suppose, that the fog of the response to the virus and this kind of adds, adds to it and maybe does account or helps to account for why countries and medical authorities in different countries would respond differently to how to, how to tackle this virus. Yeah, and I think an, a relaxed response is somewhat convenient for existing biases in the in the Netherlands. So it it avoids um, anyone having to make a difficult decision. Uh, nothing has to be called off. No big sensitive um, decisions like that have to be made. St- schools don't have to be closed. Um, the reality is now that schools, uh, children are being kept home, not because their schools are closed, but because their teachers have become sick. So it does appear that at this point, you know, this isn't something that the government has decided to control. I mean, that's just my interpretation, but that does seem how it's developing. Um, now, the overall, you could say that the overall number of um, uh, established cases in the Netherlands is relatively low. It's um, yeah, just under 400, as you say. Um, however, that is based on quite a low level of testing. So when I pressured the um, public health uh, institute, the RIVM, to tell me how many tests they'd done, um, it took them a long time to reply and they were quite vague about it. But eventually I got them to tell me that they had performed 6,000 tests. Now, that that's not the same as testing 6,000 people because they do double tests to avoid false positives and they also test people to see if they've recovered. Um, so the actual number of people who've been tested is is lower than that. And uh, it's a country of, what, 18 million or so? Or 
Yeah, um, that's right. One case that did attract some international attention was was the case of the uh, 900 students that returned from northern Italy. Can you tell us what happened to them? There was even news of their, in advance of them returning, I think, that, that this was going to take place. That's right. So um, there's a student society in the Netherlands called Vindicat, uh, based in the northern university city of Groningen. And they're somewhat notorious as they're, it's like a fraternity, although it does have women as well. So it's like fraternity slash sorority. Uh, they're notorious for sort of loutish behaviour and hazing rituals. Um, so that, that explains part of the reason why they're in the news, because they're, they kind of do attract headlines, this particular student society. Um, so um, before there was official advice not to travel to northern Italy, um, Vindicat departed with 900 students on a mass skiing trip. Now, at this point, COVID-19 was already an an issue in northern Italy, but the advice was only tightened a few days after they'd left. Um, Once uh, 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 one of the political parties here in the Netherlands picked up on the fact that this group of 900 would shortly be returning from um, one of the affected zones in northern northern Italy into the Netherlands and brought it up in Parliament. And this kind of made it a national issue and there was a lot of pressure for the government to do something about it. Uh, amid all of the... Um, amid this pressure, the student group of 900 decided to curtail their trip by a day and they returned to the Netherlands in a convoy of something like 20 buses. Um, the response of the authorities was to meet them. Um, they tested for of these students who had symptoms and they found those students to be negative. And then the advice that they gave to the rest of the students was they were free to go to university, go to work, meet their friends, go out on the town, do whatever they want if they didn't feel symptoms. Um, so that is that is a different um, approach that, that other countries would have taken. Um, and again, that was a case that was justified by the regional health authorities as being uh, as an approach that was justified by the belief that asymptomatic people cannot transmit the virus. So there was an official Q&A on the regional health authorities website that said, can the students um, transmit the virus if they don't have symptoms? And the answer was no. So it, that that is probably incorrect. Uh, according to what we know, but that was still the the advice as of last week, and remains remains uh, remains uh, the advice of the national health authorities. Now, I have been in touch with them to ask them whether they're going to update that, and they haven't gotten back to me. So, there's no great sense of a, of a change in approach in the Netherlands at this stage, or or, or a sense that anyone uh, anyone has made mistakes. Has the approach attracted criticism in the country itself? Somewhat. So there has been. Um, a little bit of attention. I wrote a long thread which sort of showed how the, on, on Twitter that is, um, that showed how the cases in the Netherlands had appeared to be spreading and how decisions about quarantines were being made on this flawed assumption about um, symptoms being necessary for transmission. Um, and that did pick up uh, quite a lot of steam. It got retweeted by some politicians and um, I heard from a couple of different people who were sort of sympathetic. Um, but overall, the official stance as of now, as of recording, is still very relaxed. Um, so, I mean, Mark Ruta has now said, OK, we're not going to do handshakes anymore. Although, as you say, he immediately undermined that by performing a handshake live on television. Um, but, you know, th- there's still there's 
it seems that the Netherlands is not willing to take steps that curtail ordinary life yet, like closing schools, closing universities, uh, calling off sports events. Um, they are at least slower to reach that point than other uh, European countries has been, which is somewhat surprising um, given what we've, the, the evidence and the information we already have from countries that are going through a serious outbreak like Italy. As you say, it's been difficult to coordinate, of course, across across Europe. And lo- looking at that bigger picture um, at a central level, what have European authorities uh, been trying to do? And, and indeed, what do they have the power to do, um, which is ov- obviously quite limited in this case? It is a very interesting question, and it does raise questions about the nature of sovereign power and what different states have the ability to do. Obviously, China uh, took quite sweeping measures early on, and we thought perhaps that might not be possible possible for a European country. But we've seen Italy try to attempt at least to do the, a similar similar sort of thing. Um, so, when it comes to the European Union, there's another conundrum of power, which is that the EU does coordinate on some things and there is a movement of free travel, the Schengen zone, uh, between some or most EU members, but not all, not Ireland. Um, And it obviously coordinates on all kinds of things. But health policy and also border policy is a national competence, so it remains in control of national governments. And there are good reasons for that. I mean, there are the individual circumstances of different countries are quite different when it comes to health. We do have quite different health systems country to country. Um, but what the the European Commission has tried to do is to encourage countries to coordinate because obviously it helps if decisions are bilateral. So if you decide that you're going to have some kind of border checks, it makes sense for countries to be in touch about coordinating that. Um, as we've seen, it would help for consistency in approach where you have people crossing borders um, anyway, you know, because if, if one country, for example, is taking more strict measures, it's somewhat undermined if the neighbouring country is taking more liberal measures and their, their citizens are coming back and forth. Um, so the, the European Commission has encouraged that and it's it's organised meetings of health ministers, a series of sort of uh, extraordinary health mini- uh, meetings. And in those meetings or after them, the health ministers have said lots of nice words about the importance of coordinating across the EU and how this is a challenge that we can only beat together. The virus doesn't respect borders and all of that. But in reality they haven't really done anything to coordinate. I mean, one of the key demands um, that Italy backed was for there to be joint purchasing of medical equipment like uh, face masks, um, which many countries in Europe have a serious shortage of, including the Netherlands. Netherlands has no ability to produce face masks and it has a shortage. Um, So the idea was that the EU would band together. They would avoid bidding against each other for stuff like face masks. And they would try and procure these and then they would be doled out according to need to different EU states. And you can see why Italy would want that, because obviously it's currently the worst affected country. And Italy said, you know, it's us today, but it's not always going to be us. It'll be somewhere else next time. So this is in everyone's interest that we coordinate on protective equipment and we don't have unused face masks sitting, say, in France while we've got a shortage in Italy, you know, because we're all European citizens. That hasn't worked. Um, so France and Italy, are, or France and Germany rather, are not uh, exporting any uh, protective equipment. So they've imposed controls to try and address their own shortages. Um, so I mean, the reality is that coordination was uh, cumbersome, slow, and it didn't really happen where it mattered. 
Finally, Naomi, yourself working in the European institutions, can you can you tell me what life is like there uh, around those institutions, and is the crisis conspicuous uh, in your daily in your daily life? It has become increasingly conspicuous. Uh, so the first sort of sign that I noticed was the um, antibacterial gel stations that popped up all around the institutions. And then after that, in the embassies, you got the different national health authorities um, uh, posters being stuck up. So, for example, in the uh, Ireland's permanent representation to the EU, they stuck up all of these yellow posters, which you'll be familiar with, say, if you're in Ireland from the HSE, advising, you know, what what, what precautions to take uh, given the, the COVID-19 outbreak. Um and then, I mean, quite quickly, quite early on, uh, journalists began asking the institutions, like, you know, is it a really good idea for all of these representatives of all of these different countries to gather in large groups and all shake each other's hands at this point? You know, should we delay or call off any events? And are you going to be doing that? And the institutions were, they were, especially the commission was rather slow um, to to kind of react to do that or to do something. The European Parliament w- uh, began reacting earlier by saying that you know travel would it, it would advise against certain travel and so on, um, but I think that the institutions were trying to balance not fueling a sense of fear um, because if you suddenly start calling off things, obviously you know it, it does raise the sense of alarm, um, and also a lot of these things are quite diplomatically sensitive, so it's difficult for them to kind of suddenly postpone them. There's a kind of uh, you know niceties that have to be managed behind the scenes. Uh, but this week, I mean, Brussels is pretty much shut down. The, the European Parliament never went to Strasbourg as it's supposed to um, periodically go to Strasbourg to hold its plenary. It decided it was going to hold it in Brussels. And now actually, in effect, many of the events that the Parliament were due to hold are cancelled anyway. Um, so, you know, at this point, you've got a lot of people within the institutions um, who have been tested positive for COVID-19 and also several, you know, lawmakers and people in governments. And I think that it is, people are realising that it's it's not really a risk you want to run to suddenly, to spread it to essentially the whole European leadership at a time of crisis. Uh, Naomi Leary, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. This week marks nine years since a magnitude 9 earthquake struck off the coast of Japan, unleashing a tsunami which killed almost 20,000 people, and the subsequent nuclear accident, which forced 160,000 more to flee their homes. Now the Japanese government is planning to lift one of the last remaining evacuation orders on the town of Futuba, to allow the Olympic torch to pass through on its way to the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo. Our correspondent in Japan, David McNeil, recalls the disaster and the long and difficult road back to normality for the people of the region. The earthquake happened on the afternoon of March 11, 2011, and um, the tsunami followed 45 minutes later. It was obviously a, a huge earthquake. It was very powerful. I was in uh, Shinagawa Station here in Tokyo, which is one of the main hubs, and we thought the roof was going to cave in on top of us, so it was the most powerful quake I felt in my 11 years or so at the time in Japan. We could see on the TV, NHK, the broadcaster here, the Japanese equivalent of RTE, got a helicopter in the air very quickly and those terrifying pictures of the tsunami kind of blotting out the northeast coast of Japan. What we discovered afterwards, of course, is that about 18,000 people were killed, mostly by the tsunami. 
uh, some by collapsing houses in the earthquake. Initially, what we thought was that we were dealing with a quake disaster followed by a tsunami. And then when we went up to cover the tsunami and the earthquake uh, the following morning, so that was March the 12th, 2011, we discovered a halfway there, if you like, on the way to the north, that we were dealing, in fact, um, also with a nuclear issue. So the Daiichi power plant, we, we now know that, first of all, the electricity to the power plant was knocked out pylons were toppled in the earthquake. And then when the tsunami arrived, it washed out the backup power generators, which were in the basement of the power plant. Three of the reactors, there were six reactors in that power plant, um, three went into meltdown. A fourth suffered a very dangerous situation. States of emergency have been declared at a series of nuclear reactors, as officials warn of a possible hydrogen explosion at a second reactor in the same complex as the one that exploded yesterday. Radiation fears have forced the evacuation of nearly 200,000 people. The disaster forced the evacuation of about 160,000 people. All along that coast, you'll find these small towns. Roughly 40,000 of those who fled have stayed away. Um, what you find when you go to those towns is that the people who have returned tend to be older. They tend to be people who've lived in the area for years, um, who have farms and houses, and uh, who, who are not uh, particularly afraid of uh, low-level radiation. But children, most of the schools in the areas don't have any children or very few children, and mothers stayed away. So you know, even nine years on, it's a particularly sort of tragic uh, landscape up there when you go and see it. The town that I covered most was called Narahat. That was, uh, uh, it's about 10 or 15 miles away from the power plant. It's about 7,200 people. And it was reopened in 2015. And when you went back there, you found that the government had chucked all this money at it. It had built a new kindergarten, a new school, shops, an old people's center. Um, but at the time, fewer than 200 people had returned. And I think it's slightly better now. There's probably about double or triple that number. But the town itself is sort of still a shadow of, of what it was. What you see when you, when, you, when you went up there for years, you know, from about 2012 uh, until uh, a couple of years ago, and even now you still see them, was decontamination crews. So small groups of uh, mainly men wearing masks who would scrape off um, five centimeters of topsoil. They would go around from house to house and systematically decontaminate each one. And the cost of that sort of huge decontamination, you know, uh, to, to an area roughly the size of Kildare, actually, um, was about 50 to $80 billion. So they, the government never really sort of said, you can't go back. You know, the idea that you were, um, that people wouldn't go back was never considered. And in fact, it was quite controversial to even suggest that, you know. So there was a, a, a government minister, the trade and industry minister, actually, uh, in 2011 to September, who called those communities towns of death in Japanese, and he was forced to quit. So there's always been that assumption that people will go back, that no expense will be spurred to make them livable again, and still a uh, great many people haven't returned. And that's really the issue for the government, it seems to me, is convincing people it's safe. The decontamination has worked in the areas where obviously radiation has, has fallen dramatically. What, what tends to be the problem is in heavily forested or wooded areas where 
the decontamination has not quite got there. And when it rains, uh, the radiation washes back down into some of these places which have been decontaminated. As for the power plant itself, uh, which started all this, um, that's going to take something like 40 years to decommission. Um, And to give you an idea of how much that will cost, there was a report by a private think tank uh, last year, the Center for Economic Research, and they put the entire price tag of decommissioning the plants, cleaning up from the meltdown, um, compensating victims. The top figure was 81 trillion yen, which is about $728 billion. And some people think it could even top that, possibly even a trillion. So nuclear power is fine when it works, I suppose. But when it goes wrong, it really goes wrong. That's the, the message, I think, from Fukushima. The Olympics were kind of branded the Recovery Olympics. And part of the rhetoric around the Olympics is that they are a sort of showcase for Japan's recovery, especially for that area of the country that was uh, decimated by this disaster. And a symbolic kind of element of that is the Olympic torch uh, will be carried from, it will, the relay for the torch will begin at Jay Village, which is a soccer training landmark uh, up, in, up in that area, and became the base for the government's crisis response during the 2011 disaster. So this is a, a way of showing that everything's back to normal. Um, and what you find is there's constant tension between the government, which says it's safe, and critics. So there was an NGO, for example, last week, uh, which said that it had tested 69, something like that, locations along the torch route and found that 14 had radiation uh, above recommended levels. And, you know, what, what people will say is, well, that's true, but these people who are going through the area will be there for a very short period of time, and this radiation is completely harmless. There, there's a, a very a tricky and complex debate about low dose rates of radiation and how harmful they are. Uh, and that debate lingers and will linger for many years to come, I think. In the fight against coronavirus, Japan is at a critical junction. The next two weeks are crucial in controlling the spread here. Japan has uncovered so far roughly a thousand cases of the coronavirus. Uh, one of the issues which has become controversial is how, how much they're testing. Some people say they're not testing enough, and actual cases are far higher. First of all, nobody really knows the, what's going to happen to the Olympics. My, my best guess at the moment is it's 50-50 because um, the virus itself is expected, or at least people hope it will peak around May. And Japan has said it will give an answer by May. Um, they've hinted at postponing the Olympics until later, later in the year. There's a, already a survey actually published this week which, which shows that a large number of people, almost a majority of people, would prefer it was cancelled. Given the amount of money that's been put into this, the latest estimates are about $28 billion. And, of course, they are symbolically attached to the 2011 disaster and the whole recovery effort there, although it has to be said that is a, a, a Tokyo-led project. You know, if you talk to people up in Tohoku, up in the disaster area, they're not especially keen on the Olympics and actually say it was a bit of a distraction. You know, they would prefer uh, if, if the money that's been pumped into the Olympics was pumped into their area and, and the country really focused on recovery rather than this symbolic show to the world that we have recovered, if you like. That's all we have time for today. For these and other stories, see irishtimes.com.